When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it's Brendan from Weedus. You're listening to Tobin Tonight. Brendan, first off, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Tobin Tonight. Uh, I was actually pretty thrilled when you responded to my email. Like usually you go through the PR and yes, we went through PR, but like when automatically he was like, oh, well, Brendan's going to send you a message soon. I was like, yeah, he'll probably send it like within like two or three, like three days. And instantly it was a message. I was like, he sent me a message that quickly. I was like, oh, okay. It's like, awesome. This guy's, this guy's devoted here. Yeah. Uh, well, devoted or just, we run our own show. <laughs> um, you know, uh, what, uh, uh, sometimes management can like, that's what takes long. Yeah. You know, um, it's different in all circumstances, I'm sure, but uh, we haven't had management for since about 2005. So okay. we're 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 100% independent on that front, and it's been it's been good that way. Well, well, you had me fooled, so there you go. You may, I, well, I mean, it's it's good. Like it's always kind of interesting when you're the one that's doing all the work for yourselves, because I mean, at least there's like no middle person that you kind of get miscommunicated with, I guess. Right. Right. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's um. True. But. I, I want to start by going way back to when you started Weedus. So like, how did it come about? Cause now I, I believe it was you and your brother kind of started off. Uh, but in your own words, kind of explain like where you got interested in forming a band. Like, was this always on your mind to create a band or were you like, you know what? I'm going to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I never said I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, that, that was never, that never crossed my mind. Um, a lot of people growing up told me I should be a lawyer, uh, but I no. But uh, the uh, fact is that I kind of started the band by myself. Um, okay. And that's kind of an oxymoron because a single person is not a band. But um, I was, uh, what I was doing was I was in, in a lot of other bands. I was a lead guitar player, backing vocalist um, in, in a few other projects. In one, I was a songwriter, but the, but the rest of them was, uh, was sort of like, I guess you could call it sideman or like engineer sideman, like, you know, like, um, and was gaining experience in the way of touring. I toured with Joan Jett, uh, and the black hearts, uh, with my band opening up for hers or my, the band I was playing in, I should say not my band, but the band I was playing in opening up for her band for the black hearts, um, around 1996. And, from a graduation of college, sort of like well, the last year of college, 94, 95, 96, those three years, I was like, okay, well, I got, you know, I got to get a job and everything and I got to get bills paid and I got to get an apartment and all that stuff. But what I really need to do is I need to figure out how to make records. And that meant being in lots of bands and getting lots of studio experience and, and watching the process happen. I was reluctant to show anybody my stuff at that time because I was had yet to really like find my own voice you know like find how find out how i sounded or or what i wanted to say um 
So during that process of being in and out of other bands and being on and off the road, I, I was back in my own little laboratory in my shitty apartment uh, with a four track, you know, cassette four track and a drum machine and a bass and a vocal mic. And I was like uh, woodshedding what a project that was led by me as a vocalist, singer, songwriter would be like, you know, trying to figure out how to build it before I showed it to other people so that it was a whole idea. I had been in other projects where the creative energy was fraught and sort of competitive and destructive in some ways because there were too many cooks in the kitchen, um, too many people who knew what they didn't like but didn't know how to make something that other people liked, you know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> uh, and I wanted to wait until it had uh, finished cooking before I started showing anybody, including other band members, potential band members that I would work with. So um, it was about 97 when I started to play with other people and bring people into rehearsal spaces and show them what I was working on. And they, by that time they were complete ideas. I knew what the baseline was gonna be. I knew how the drums were gonna go. I had programmed it all or, or played it myself. Uh, so I had demo, you know, four track demo examples of every arrangement for about it was about 20 songs, a little over 20 songs uh, for that would wind up going on the first Wheatus record and some sub subsequent Wheatus records. But, uh, but the point is that um, uh, when you asked me if I founded the band with my brother, no, he wasn't around yet. He was still in college. I had graduated college. I was working in New York City. So um, uh, he finally did graduate college. And we, that's when I thought, well, he's perfect. You know, I trust him and I have a musical rapport with him and he gets me in ways that uh, somebody else won't. So he became the first drummer for the band. Um, and we, uh, we started playing shows, you know, 97, 98, 99, we were showcasing, getting better at that. That was like phase two, you know, like phase one is make the sound of the band, yeah. make it work in a studio. And phase two was, was get out on uh, live. And then like the third phase came when we were faced with a record deal. Cause that was the kind of like, Oh shit, you know, Phase one there. and two yeah. brought us to this, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. So that, at that point, we, um, uh, during the 97, 98 process of demoing, I started working with Phil Jimenez, who was my co-producer on, who would eventually become my co-producer on album one. And he was also uh, a percussionist, multi-instrumentalist. He's a fantastic songwriter in his own right, but he, he wasn't writing with me. He wanted to see what this strange idea with this acoustic guitar that was played like an electric and these drums that were kind of like mixing hybridizing metal and like seventies funk stuff. And um, so, or Motown. So, so it was like that. It was like he, he and I were sort of studio tinkering people and not so much like competitive songwriters, you know? Yeah. Um, we, we approached the process as engineers and he was very respectful of the fact that I had completed all these ideas in a vacuum, you know? So uh, he was there to see them to life with me. And uh, we struggled and made some false starts and made a lot of mistakes. But eventually by the time Columbia records was noticing our showcasing in the city, in New York city, we uh, got, had narrowed down what we wanted to do on the record uh, with consistent studio work over and over again, starting over, trashing what we had done, starting it over, replacing little parts, you know, 
anything and everything to get to a point where it was like, yeah, this sounds like nothing I've ever heard before. And it's what we want. It's what it sounds like in my head. You know? Yeah. Like, so, now, so, so I, I kind of want to go back a little bit here. Cause when you're mentioning, like, it seems like you're very like interested, dedicated to music, even at this, like a young age in college university per se, but like, what were you initially going to university or college for? That's a good question. So I, I was on a pre-med Oh really? Uh, track. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I went, I started the university of Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, 1991 as a pre-med major. Okay. See this, um, this is like taking me to for a whole different loop. It's like, you know, cause I figured if you're in like the music industry or even like judging by your answer, they're very dedicated to music. I was assuming you'd be like, Oh yeah, I went into like for arts. But when you say pre-med, I can just imagine if you had to go into pre-med, it's like, this guy's dying here over here. And you're still like, I'm working on my tracks, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, my, my uh, artistic life has always been very opposite from my school life. Uh, okay. I never, uh, with the exception of some art classes, uh, requirements in high school and whatnot, I never uh, exuded art in school in any way. Art was always a private uh, time thing for me. Um, my family, we didn't know anybody in the music industry. We don't have any artists in the family or anything like that. My parents both worked, um, you know, sort of middle class, working class uh, upbringing in the suburbs of New York City. And it was uh, very much on me to find my own creative space. It wasn't being, it wasn't on offer anywhere. There were no programs that I, that I was ever a part of or anything. So my, again, my, my solitude contributed to my art um, almost exclusively and not as a group, not in a group setting. Uh, not in not in an educational setting at all. So that's the track I was on. I was on a pre-med. I was always interested in the sciences. Yeah. Um, and of course, everybody, everybody's parents want them to be a doctor at some point. <laughs> so, um, so, but they, that was the advice and the, and the sort of conveyor belt that I found myself on when I was 17. Uh, I started college when I was 17. It was because of where my birthday falls in the year. So it's okay. like, yeah, in December. Right. Well, it was I, my birthday's in October, but yes, it was first month of college. I was 17 years old. Um, so I was uh, heavy on the sciences for the first two years of college. And, and um, I, I had always been able to get by in school. I was never an, ex uh, an exceptional student, but I was like, I would make like 85, 90 here and there and like keep my grades above 85. You oh, know? That, that's not exceptional at all. No, of course not. No, that sounds great. What are you talking no, about? No, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> it really wasn't. I mean, maybe things are different now and that's, that's, that's graded differently. But, um, but I was just, a lot of the teachers would comment that like, you could do more, but you're not, you know, you're lazy, you know, kind of thing. And it was, the truth was, I just wanted to play music. I didn't give yeah. a shit about school. Yeah. I like, I put in exactly the effort that was required to get the minimal amount of criticism. You're, bas you're basically just showing up and being like, I will do the min here and the max <laughs> yeah. out there. And then it's yeah. like, so you can just knock it on my back because I'm doing exactly where I need to be. Like, yeah. Now the thing is, uh, spending that much time on guitar and playing music as a kid, even in college, was kind of like a little little bit scary because we knew nobody who knew how to make that a career you know that wasn't that was like a such a weird little like pipe dream that that i couldn't really understand as a reality yeah until i kind of scratched at it enough for the for that to happen but um i know that there are people who were raised in artistic families and parents who understand that kind of track for career and they wind up at juilliard or whatever you know what i yeah, yeah. but i i I, I, I didn't do that so my Again, 
my music was a solitary sort of non-schooled um, uh, self-taught. Enterprise. Yeah, because it, it's interesting because like when you mentioned about, you know, no, no one in your family had like any connections in the music. It's, it's weird to see now kind of, you know, if you upload something on YouTube or if you look up something on like TikTok and then that kind of either gets its own following. But even before that, you have like music talent shows like American Idol, The Voice, that can get you exposure. Um, and even in some cases, like I think it's weird because there's some acts that I'll listen to and I'm like, oh, like they have a great voice. They just came out of nowhere. And then when you dig a little bit deeper and you get older, you realize they have a family member involved in like the music industry. Like they're either a uh, partnership with just say Sony or Columbia Records or whatever. And you're like, okay, I can kind of see how you got the chance to get your foot in the door because if you weren't related, you weren't getting in there. But it's so interesting when you hear of bands that had no relation get like you know get their success and it kind of gives you a little bit more of a respect factor a little bit more of a um in- investment because you're like okay so this person worked their ass off to get here um so yeah i think that's kind of interesting when you said that there was like no musical people in your family and you know you're in pre-med but you're kind of focused on music and it led all to this so i, I mean kudos to you because that just shows a lot of dedication to to you know get even your foot in the door yeah, well, I would replace the word dedication with obsession. I, well, yeah. I, I was just being nice about it. I was being nice <laughs> yeah, about no, it. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't need to try to find the energy to work on music when I, after an exhausting studying for a test or whatever. It was, just came automatically. That was like, if I, wasn't, if I wasn't doing schoolwork, I was playing my guitar, you know? Um, so <clears throat> I think that um, what had happened was, uh, you know, I kind of had a bit of a revelation when in my sophomore year, uh, my second semester, I was having a really hard time with um, organic chemistry. Okay. I don't know if you've taken organic chemistry, but... The most I've taken is high school chemistry. And let me tell you, that was enough for me. I, I, right. hated, I hated chemistry, but when people, when people know it, great. It's just sometimes there's things you know. Some people are good at math. Some people are good at science. Some people are good at making themselves look silly. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, makes two of us. Yeah. Um, no, but but what I, what the, I made myself look silly in school by I failed organic chemistry, okay. uh, which was the first class in my life that I had ever failed at. Now this kind of scared me because I put myself to it. I had applied myself, and I was interested in it, like without having to be, you know, a bookworm or anything. I was fascinated by, oh, I still am fascinated by all the sciences. So this was really disturbing. And uh, uh, without, uh, without telling anybody, I went to see an eye doctor to see what was, what was going on. Cause I was at the time having a really hard time finishing tests. They okay. seemed that in the long uh, organic chemistry has these like, you know, gigantic legal sized sideways fucking, you know, yeah, cap, uh, yeah. calcul- you know, yeah. uh, equations that are, you have to be balanced and chemical equation pro- problem solving is really tricky. You have to like really keep your place. You can't make any mistakes. And I was making tons and tons of mistakes. So, <laughs> so I went and checked and I had to, it turned out I had this like somewhat, uh, uncommon, uh, ocular problem where I was born with one of my eyes is like, is like rotated 45 degrees in it or a few degrees and it's in the in the socket without okay. be without being crossed yeah it's turned yeah so that's called a rotated nystagmus 
And um, now whenever I go into the eye doctor to get my glasses renewed, they all call each other in like, hey, everybody, come here. Look at this guy. <laughs> He's got, remember this from school, you know? So like, it's, it's, it was one of those like weird things that I had that I didn't know I had. And I had made it all the way to, you know, to uh, almost 20 years old, 19 years old um, before realizing that I had a real physical uh, problem, you know? Yes. Um, so I, um, at that point, I had completed enough of my sciences uh, requirements in, in my uh, program at Scranton to switch majors and and uh, and get more into something that I was maybe more interested in being when I got out of there, despite the fact that I was definitely going to be a musician no matter what. But, you know, I was always told you got to have a backup plan, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's total bullshit, by the way. It's not true. I just happened to have one because I, you know, thought I needed one. But um, the uh, I became a history major. Uh, with a minor in psych. So that's what I graduated from my bachelor's four-year college with. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, I think it's interesting because it's like the concept of just going through all this, you know, kind of schoolwork, but knowing at the very end of it, it's like, yeah, I'm not doing this, but it's like nice, nice to have it at least. Um, well, there was that feeling of like, okay, well, I was on the official track, right? I was on yeah. like where everyone wanted me to be. And it still didn't work out. And I remember thinking like, well, let's see what else isn't going to work out. Yeah. And I started like really hardcore auditioning for bands in New York City. And I was driving, I would get the Village Voice on Wednesday morning because it was a day late up in Scranton, which yeah. is about two and a half hours away. And uh, I would uh, call up all the guitarists wanted ads and start driving. I'd drive down on Thursday night to Manhattan and audition and drive back and go to class on Friday and then Friday night and go drive back. And I was just like, always auditioning for bands in New York City just like you know kind of just headed down there and we didn't tell my housemates where I was going I was just like on this like still music yeah. uh being a solitary kind of like it'd be interesting to see what they're like at the time what they thought you were doing and then realizing like years later this is what you were actually doing as it's like just the yeah of like well, like he goes out at this time at night. We don't know. Here's our theories. And then like later on, it's like, <laughs> he's, he's always in class the next day, but <laughs> yeah. you know, no, as no, long as, I, as long as he's there, that's, that's my concern. It's like, I don't want to call from his parents going like, have you seen my son? It's like, to be honest, I haven't. And I'm glad. So you yeah. can't blame this one on me. Yeah. Well, it was already, I was already one of those kids who had a, I had a job at school. I was delivering. Okay. Pizza. So, um, you know, I was like, I was almost never, never around to party yeah, or hang yeah. out or anything anyway from, from about uh, end of sophomore year going forward. But um, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting time. I was in the wrong place, but I had, the, I had accidentally discovered something about myself that I could make something of. And of course, all the ideas for songwriting are just kind of coming out of me, not really without any context you know i don't know i wouldn't know at the time like well you can go and have a band and you know publish these songs and yeah. that's a career path and all that stuff it just i just didn't understand any of, the, of that world you know so uh so playing my first show at cbgb's with my hardcore band in like 92 and like you know other things that stacked up as as memorable like notches in the belt of a new york city musician didn't really register to me as career moments, but were more or less like, oh man, that was amazing. You know, like it's just like, yeah, it was a very hobbyist mentality, but I was becoming a professional because of how obsessed I was with it. You know, the, the thing I kind of want to get into a little bit here as well is, you know, when you were mentioning a little bit earlier about, 
you know, making the band, um, kind of getting your, in, like getting into, I guess, creating the band and where you mentioned, um, like you, you didn't know anyone prior to this. Uh, like who were some of your kind of influences to kind of get you into music or um, just kind of create a band? Like I know for myself with podcasting, um, I grew up watching like Conan O'Brien doing the tonight show. Like I'm just that, like I seen his late night bits, but the tonight show is where I kind of really implanted it. Mm. And I just watched him like, this is great. Like this, you're telling me this guy can be a goofball, have a serious interview. And that's what he gets paid for. I'm like, yeah, sign me up for that. Um, so like who kind of influenced you to be like, man, like, let me pick up a guitar one day or let me sing. Like if you're doing it, I want to do it too. Uh, in my sort of like, uh, like adolescent identity, the important stuff, it was Angus Young. Oh, really? 100, okay. A hundred million times Angus Young. I mean, I had been into, as a kid, I was into Sean Anna and Bobby Darren and, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the Temptations and like Huey Lewis and Mark Knopfler and all this stuff. But when I really found my holy shit, <laughs> I identify here, it was Angus Young. Okay. Um, yeah. And he was this like snot nosed fucking brat who could shred your face off with like, with more energy than you like, look like it being, he was being electrocuted to death, you know, on stage. And he's like, Wah! you know, like playing, playing the best fucking guitar solo you ever heard. And he's totally like, like microsecond accurate on the beat, like so tight, you know, very, very, very good musician. Um, and that was, uh, that would did it for me, that energy and that precision did it for me. Um, okay. And no. early on, a lot of the, the convention about ACDC, you know, is all, all their songs are the same and it's all just meat and potatoes rock. And as I started to like peel that onion yeah. on the guitar, I was like, this is not easy. This is fucking, if this was easy, a lot of more people would be doing it. Like, this is hard, man, you know? And, you know, learning that Malcolm was the songwriter and that he had like sort of broken two guitars into like orchestral pieces that could be, arranged as though they were brass and woodwind kind of thing like the, that's what Malcolm Young's style actually can be compared to um I, I I knew that there was a world of information that I didn't have yet and that I needed so I dove into you know after dressing up as Angus for Halloween in 1985 or whatever it was I I learned subsequently how to do things that he did um, okay. and was, uh, forever, forever obsessed with him after that. Still am. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, that's, that's interesting. Cause it's always kind of cool to see where people kind of get their inspirations from, or like who kind of drove them into a certain field. So no, I can, I can kind of see that, especially when you mentioned about how, um, obsessed we are with music. I was like, okay, I, I can see the relationship there. Um, yeah. the other thing I want to mention too, as you're, when you kind of got into it, and I kind of got you a little bit off the rails there, but when you mentioned about getting your first record deal, um, like explain that a little bit to me, because I know a lot of people like myself, it's kind of interesting that, because I wanted to bring this up to you as well, is when I was watching, so I'm in Canada, so watching like a Much Music countdown and seeing- I love you know, Much Music. Yeah, like seeing like Teenage Dirtbag, like I, at the time, I'm like, I believe it's like 2000 or so it came out. So I'm not, I'm probably like nine. And I'm like, I don't understand what he's singing about. Like the teen, this is great. Like it's, you're in your teenage years. What's so there to complain about? And then when you get to high school 
And then you listen to those iHeart 90s, iHeart 2000s, and these songs are playing. Um, like even to this day, I'm like, totally relatable, totally get it. But I, I keep on looking at that video and I'm like, is that Freddie Prince Jr.? Like, I, I don't know if that's Freddie <laughs> Prince Jr. Like I look at it and I'm like, I, I, the music video to me is like all over the place, but I get it. But at the same point, it's just to like, that doesn't usually happen a lot of times in a high school where like the nerdy kid just walks up and be like, I got these two tickets. You want to come see, do you want to come to the concert? And they're like, yeah, so, sure. I'll go with you. <laughs> so what, obviously the, the, at that point, the video was not very much in my control, although the yeah, narrative, yeah, no, no. The narrative yeah. of the song is pretty on the nose. <laughs> so it's hard to deviate from, but one thing did happen that I've always been happy about in that video is it proves to be a dream that he wakes up from at the end, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, without going down the whole snow globe thing, um, I wrote that song as a fantasy. It's fictionalized. It's not, it's not a, it's a daydream. Yeah. Know? So, um, you know, cause I went to a boys school uh, <laughs> where I commuted <laughs> an hour and a half on a train toward <laughs> New York city, starting at the age of 13, you know, so I didn't, I didn't see any girls. There was no, there was no Noel in my life. So, um, you know, it's just kind of like a uh, an imagination of what um, a romantic endeavor in a co-ed environment would be like f from a kid who didn't have a co-ed environment. <laughs> you know, so that was that was where it's coming from. Yeah. Um, and I was glad that they made it a daydream for that reason. It kept it kept the authenticity in the, in the video. The song kind of speaks for itself without a video, but the video. It's oh, something no, like, like, like you said, a lot of people were introduced, you know? Yeah, like, no, like, listen, like, I'm giving you full praise because I love the song. I mean, as much as it's, it gets played over and over on, like, like, for example, I understand somehow how radio goes. Like, if it's a top 40 station, they're going to play, like, it's a loop. But, like, when I listen to, like, an iHeart 90s or iHeart 2000s, that song comes on and I've got, like, my niece or my, like, nephew in the room and they're like, you know this song word for word. Are you happy about that? I'm like, yeah, it's a great song. What what do you like? What five year old is coming up to me like trying to tease me that I know like words for a song? And then uh, I'll like go back and look at the video from time to time. And like, still still a great video, still holds up. But it's so ironic in a way because in Canada where we have like Simple Plan, Avril Lavigne, like I believe Simple Plan's like first song is like I'm just a kid, and it's almost like the same kind of a little bit of the same concept where it's like. Um, this dorky kid is able to do everything, but then like these jocks come by and be like, no, I can fix your car, I can do this. And then it turns out bad for them. And I'm just like, is this like the, the concept of early 2000s is like, hey, we gotta get the nerds involved and we gotta make the nerds look cool. <laughs> sure, well, I mean, yeah, the, my own, my own uh, adolescent experience wasn't quite that simple. It was a lot more complex. Um, the place I came from was, relatively violent little town uh on long island so yeah. i you can read about that in in other publications uh if you want to look up what happened uh when i was 10 years old you can there's a rolling stone article from uh november uh 1984 november 22nd 1984 that that rolling stone issue has uh, a detailed uh breakdown of the of the teen homicide that happened where i was living but okay um but there but it, it was uh it's been sort of um, that that experience has been uh, sort of made more Disney over the years, and uh, I didn't really write about the real thing that happened, but yeah. the setting the setting for my teenage dirtbag life was you know 
Long Island in 1984, which was not a very yeah. pleasant place. And no, the good guys didn't win and get the girl and all that. You know, that was like all all made up. So, uh-huh. um, but the uh, I guess you mentioned in terms of videos being being impactful. I was lucky enough to have a an apartment um, in an area uh, in New York where we got much music on the cable. Right? Okay, and this is like maybe 95, 96, 97, around the time I was, you know, wood shopping the record. And uh, I discovered the Tragically Hip there and um, uh, Matthew Good Band and uh, a whole bunch of other Canadian stuff I had never been exposed to. And in particular, the video for Bob Cajun, um, the, the hip, that just destroyed me. That was like a really beautiful little art piece, a little allegory, a little narrative about um, just wanting to find, to have peace in your relationship somewhere. It's also like uniquely Canadian yeah. in, <laughs> in ways that, that I had never been exposed to. And I was a huge Rush fan when I was in high school. I mean, I went to see him a whole bunch of times and I went through right after my ACDC phase, I got really heavy into the Rush phase. So Canada was was in my life in some ways, um, and all the jokes and the, my brother and I were obsessed with um, uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie. Strange. Oh yeah, yeah. There you, but, there you go. <laughs> but uh, but we but the it was so close and yet so far away. But here was your music channel, you know, having encountered Rush and and uh, McKenzie brothers in the eighties, and then like now I have my own apartment, and here's this band called The Tragically Hip on TV, and I was like who are these guys? And I, I, I got all of the records, which is the way that I do it. If I like anything enough, I yeah. just go and I walk out with a stack. Well, <laughs> used to walk out of the music store with a stack of shit this high um, and, uh, and just go through it real slowly, you know? Um, and to this day we cover um, music at work and uh, we cover time stand still when we're on tour. And they're only, only covers that are consistent on stage for us, our Canadian band. Um, and I don't really know why it's just music that like makes a lot of sense to play you know it just it feels great if you can get it right especially with Rush you're you have to put the time in oh yeah but um you know it's uh it's the video the the video did that to me initially um Bob Cajun video did you ever get the chance because I know what tragic hip like did you ever get the chance to meet Gord Downey no unfortunately we never crossed paths uh I went to see them whenever they came to New York. Um, I just, the guy was just the, his poetry and like his weird little voice that he almost speaks with instead of singing, but then you realize it's also a beautiful melody, you know, like it's just like he, 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 um, he's much more of a performance artist, like a holistic humanist performance artist than a musician. He wasn't just a musician, you know, and of yeah. course the, band is incredible um but uh yeah i mean i there's no week in my life that's gone by since i really dove into the hip in the 90s that i have not turned to lake fever or the whole entire phantom power record um or uh oh boy there's just so much tragically hip i mean music at work is one of those songs that if i'm really feeling like shit i just like Boop, like block the world out and destroy my ears with that song, you know? Um, Cause it feels like, 
it's such a survivalist yeah. you know song and he's got these the imagery in that song um uh with the where he's talking about um oh actually now I'm, now i'm thinking of um what's the first this the song the title track phantom power um your imaginations having puppies okay it could be a video for new recruits just stare into the camera and pretend that you've got the flu and it's like <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Why, why do I know what you're talking about? You're talking nonsense. And somehow I know exactly what the hell you're talking about. Um, and it's a, he, he spoke to a very like, like, like a buzzing creative energy, uh, almost a synesthesia kind of thing where you're hearing colors and you're tasting sound and all of that. Yeah. Um, he was perpetually on that edge so any of his lyrics just really like they they could just like cut you in half it's the band that i most i most stop and start the song over again because i'll get on a lyric and just like i'll i'll be like what is he talking about hold on and I just be distracted by how powerful it is so um yeah uh his his uh passing is is just really shitty like yeah. the worst it's um, it's, it's kind of like to me with music and especially with like like canadian acts like tragically hip like so for me i'm only like 29 per se so like growing up and you'd hear the song on a radio and it could be like a tragically hip song um could be like third eye blind like and and you, you like you kind of like the song but you're like for me i had by a century when i kept on hearing it as a kid i was like oh my god like this is so dull i'm so bored and then when i got older and Again, it all comes with perspective. You'd be like out at a out at a bar, or you're having a like conversation with your female roommate or something, and then things don't go your way. Then you hear that song on your radio. You're like, okay, I can now kind of relate to this song in somewhat of a context, or like this makes some sense to me, or I can feel it. Um, but it's, it's just a, yeah, that, that's that song is devastating. Yeah, yeah, but like and, as a kid, you're like <clears throat> listening to it, and I'm just still like. Can we can we change the channel? Can you not turn something else on? But then when I'm older, I'm like, I want to go back and punch like eight year old me and be like, you, you fucking listen to this shit, like it. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Like I had a conversation with like a much so the much music VJ Rick Campanelli at one point, and I was telling him about Third Eye Blind, uh, Never Let You Go, and I was like, I love the video, love the song. That's my favorite song yeah. out there. Never like, but never really kind of understood it. Just like like the the sound of the guitar, everything. And then when I got older, I was like. I understand what he's singing about. So now it makes, or semi-charged, yeah, semi-charged kind of life. Or, and then I was like, loved it. And then when I got older, I'm like, oh, this guy's singing about this? Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, Never Let You Go is is um, sort of very generous, like take on, <laughs> on, a bad, on a bad relationship or a relationship you never should have been in in the first place or whatever. And it has this sort of like lighthearted, like, letting go vibe yeah. but that is definitely their trickiest song to try and mimic because oh, it, sure is, it is it's this quirky little space you know <laughs> and you go to you go to play that and you realize yeah. like the drummer needs to go take some lessons to get that song right and so do you you know so yeah. uh, it's like uh he he makes he steven uh is capable of making sort of carnival music yeah. That sounds like a goof, but is really intense. It's, you know? it's so good, though. It's yeah, so, so good. good. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, now, I, I kind of want to mention a little bit about, because I know when we mentioned um, you kind of formed the band uh, and then, of course, uh, getting the first record label. Um, if you don't mind, and again, I, I should have brought it up a little bit beforehand, but there was a point when you were with a record label and I, I believe it just, it wasn't going over quite well. And then the song is kind of, it's like suck phony. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. Like explain so that. There's a, couple, yeah. there's a couple of things that was, uh, there's a weird coincidence that happened with that. Yeah. We were, we were booked to open up for Stone Temple Pilots and Green Day at a Finnish uh, festival that was above the Arctic Circle in the summertime right? It was a midnight festival. And um, we were really excited about this because a few months prior, we had played the previous summer, I should say, we had played uh, the Indi one of the Indiana raceways with um, that lineup with Green Day and Stone Temple Pilots. And we were like, we had a great show that night and it was a great bill. And we were so excited to maybe do more of that with those guys. So this was the second time we were able to get on the same bill with them. Anyway, um, a week and a half prior to the show and we're already touring Europe. We're in Denmark. We're in like Switzerland. We were all around. We found out that uh, both bands had dropped off of the festival and that the promoter had offered us a headlining slot. Okay. Now that on a normal circumstance would be great. And we thought it was. So we said, yes, it was only about three days prior to the actual event that we found out that he, instead of um, putting us as the headliner, on the night that we were supposed to be, he moved us to be the headliner on the metal night. Now, metal in Finland yeah. Yeah. is not like metal elsewhere. It's black metal. It's like, it's like church burning, fucking sacrifice, kill your bandmates, you know, yeah. Varg Vilnius or whatever his name. Like, it's serious. Like, they don't joke around about that shit. And we, are, we have metal influences. I learned how to play every note on Justice for All when I was a kid, but I like that's not the music that we make you know like it's just, and i wasn't going to try and be that band but we found out too late and we played this festival anyway and uh these fucking guys were like i mean they hated us so yeah. hard and i was you know we were scared we were a little scared because there was like a, a bit of violence happening out there and a lot of dr drunkenness like i've never seen and i got hit in the chest with a rock somebody threw like the size of my fist like really okay. big, like a, almost a boulder and just took it, took it dead on in the chest. And I'm really glad that it wasn't four inches higher or hit my guitar or lower because it yeah. would have been curtains. But, um, but I, in, the, in a stupid moment, and this is the first and last time I ever did anything like this, I challenged the guy who threw it to a fight on stage. <laughs> and this guy, this fucking Viking warrior comes out of nowhere with like blonde hair down to his ass and he's seven feet tall and he's he's three of me and he's just ready to rip me in half you know yeah. um so uh security jumps on him and i realized instantly what a stupid thing that is to ever say to anybody ever on stage but um the whole time he's screaming in his sort of best english suck phony <laughs> right yeah. like you guys suck because you're phony and uh I thought that's a fucking great name for a live album. And we record, I think we recorded everything back then on that. And we maybe even got that show. So um, I was obsessed with making a record that was a live record that was called Suck Phony. So we had that title kicking around. 
and it never occurred to me that it's just switching the letters for fuck Sony. It was just, it was just, that was, okay. was happening that night, that yeah. violent moment. So um, later on, when we got out of the Sony deal, we said, well, let's, let's rebrand this, this record right here as, um, as Duck Phony and, and see if, see if we could just re-release it because our second album had been such a sort of like miss at the label. They hated it. And yeah, we were really disappointed with the way that they put it out. They put it out like really bad. They put the wrong release date on posters. And like, it was like a total catastrophe. That record didn't stand a chance. They refused to release it in America. So, or North America, I should say. So, um, so we were, uh, we had this, bitter pill that we got from the second record and it truth is is that our relationship with the label would have been fine if we didn't have a hit with uh overseas and then the um there was competition between the two offices the new york office who had signed us had failed at promoting Teenage Dirtbag to the point that it did well, yeah. but everywhere else kind of got it right. It, first and foremost was um, the United Kingdom, where it really, really blew up. And the president of Columbia Records over there, um, uh, uh, Blair McDonald was his name. He, he really knew what to do with it and he hit a home run and uh, we wound up doing the right things, you know, for the time that yeah. he was there. We, he, was, he was very watchful over us and it worked out. But, um, there was competition and, and sort of bitterness between the two offices at that point. So there was like all these half-ass attempts uh, by the New York office to bring us back over and make it happen the right way. And they had these terrible ideas. And I actually was told one time you should sing more like a guy, you know, and all that. And it was like, uh, you know, like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know? Yeah. Um, so uh, it was uh, a weird circumstance coming off of the way that we, were successful that led to the breakdown of the relationship and um i think that uh it couldn't have gone any other way really because we weren't we weren't like hollywood kids we were like these working class yeah. kids from new york so we didn't we didn't know how to talk to talk and we didn't know how to schmooze either so it's just as much on us to not be able to make it in that culture you know so uh, but but that was fine because that was 2003 2004 guess what was happening then the whole entire music industry was unraveling okay. and you know we finally were free at this moment where we had had a hit but not a big one not so big to make people sick of us and we got our you know the rights to our second album back so that never happened and um uh we were able to start independent releasing at the dawn of the internet uh of independent releasing yeah now keep in mind there was no youtube there was no digital distribution for itunes you couldn't you had to know somebody and get it on get it on yeah. iTunes and so, so so we we stumbled through 2004 2005 but by 2006 2007 we were independently distributed band that was touring without management without a record label without any of the baggage of the preceding century you know um which was makes us one of the luckiest you know made it we were like indiana jones who like slides in under the closing stone door and grabs his hat you know like that's <laughs> that was like we got out of there just in time you know so um it was fortunate that way and that's that's the story of our label relationship i would say so like in in saying that i because I, I don't want to like bring up too or like you know kind of dig a, a bigger hole here or whatnot but like 
did you ever get backlash or did anyone from like Sony ever contact you about that? Like, you know, like no. take this down. Oh, okay. Well that's cause that's interesting. Cause like I can see now it could be different in today's world too, but it's like almost like any time, even if it's like slightly a jab, it's like a record company comes after it and goes like, excuse us. Like what, what are you doing? Like we're coming I at think you. That, I think that what, at that point we were such a small fish and it was such a big pond. I don't think they even noticed. Yeah. Frankly, half the people who worked with us during the two years that we were on Columbia records were gone from the company anyway. Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of turnover happening there. And we had really been, we were like really pissed off about the way that they did our second album. Man. Like that was like garbage. I mean, our first album recouped, you know, like that's, we, we were ready to make them money and they were like, nah, you know, and I just, I was like, okay, <laughs> if you, if you got it like that, then, you know, fine. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but uh, I, yeah, it was, uh, it was a weird time. I don't think any of them saw coming what came, you know, like the, the, the digital revolution and i don't think i remember i was working at a and one of the jobs i had when i was before i got got a record deal i was working in times square in new york city for these uh two sort of like hippie dudes who ran a, a vpn company they were building private networks for wall street you know and um yeah i had a one of my cds in the office because uh, on the way to a show that night so i had it in my bag and they were like oh you musician yeah <laughs> you know that CD, that's that that song on there you got soft that's software that's going to be out that's going to you're not going to be able to control that and i was like what he's <laughs> like yeah man that's a piece of software it's no longer like a physical you don't know about this problem that you, you know the music industry is going to be like you know have it's picked up by its ankles and have its pockets you know yeah. dumped out like i was like what what do you mean and i like that got my clock ticking on that and i kind of had that concept i had that idea in my head that like well maybe it's not going to be worth that much you know i mean maybe things are changing it was hard to imagine at the time considering that the new britney spears cd was 25.99 in tower records in times square you know that year so um it was a weird it was a weird kind of like oh yeah like these two guys who had who got it, who knew what was coming. They were warning me about, yeah, you know, if you're going to be a musician, you got to know about that. And I, yeah. like, I took that lesson. So, so it was a little bit of being, we were a little prepared for it a little bit. It's almost like I find it, and maybe it's somewhat relatable, but it's like when I'm doing podcasting or doing interviews or when I upload stuff, like when I first started this podcast, for example, like I was like, Oh man, like I need some trendy tracks for an opening. I need a trendy track for an ending. Like, and like you're uploaded on YouTube and it's like, this is a copyright claim. You're like, like what? Like it's, it's only a, the intro of a song, like whatever. And then you're like, you realize after you're like, that's if you're basically whole point of your podcasting or stuff is like, if I don't have this person do my intro, this podcast going to suck. It's like, well, your podcast is going to suck because you didn't put in like, you're, you're more focused on someone getting drawn in and helping the other person get the money than you know, them sticking around for your own content. So I eventually learned that, but it's like, uh, it's somewhat funny when you look at like your YouTube posts and it's like, you can't make money off this because you used 30 seconds of this song. I'm like, well, what? Like I only used 30 seconds, but then you realize after like, you can't do that. And you're like, you oh. know, I don't know why there isn't, it seems to me it would be incredibly easy to set up yeah. a structure for licensing. Yeah. Like, oh, you want to use 30 seconds of Teenage Dirtbag in your podcast? Okay, yeah. well, you know, give me 20 cents uh, yeah. per, per view, you well, know, like, or whatever, whatever, yeah. whatever it is. Like, 
I'm, I, it, can, it can be worked out. I'm sure it can be worked out where we don't have to like, you know. Well, it's just, it's interesting to me because, so what I used to think too is, um, you know, if I reached out to just say the Arkells and like I reached out to like Max Kerman from the Arkells and said, Max, I'm doing a video. Do you mind if I use your song? And Max goes, sure, whatever. And then like you get something from YouTube and like, this is like the beginning stages. Like, I, you know, you, you smarten up eventually just through your own occurrences. But then it was like copyright claim, like that motherfucking Max, like he, he ratted me out. It's like, you'd be like, go to Max, be like, you said I could use these. Like I did, but it's the record him. company didn't. Yeah, like, it's not, it's got nothing to do with it. Yeah. yeah and then I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, Max. I flipped out at you. He's like, no man, totally understood. And I'm like, so who's the, who's the guy I got to reach out to? They're like, oh, I don't know that part. And I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> like, I'm like, okay. It's like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, that it's unfortunately at this point, it's all very automated and yeah. you don't really get to make deals that way yeah. with each other. It's, so, like, it's, it's like when you post on it, like if I post on Instagram, when I did of like, you know, coming soon to the podcast, I posted your episode of like coming soon. It's like, okay, Instagram allowed me to use the song or like, you know, to, to promote it, blah, blah, blah. And you can do that whatever way you want. But then the moment you use it almost in an episode, put it in Spotify or on YouTube, it's like, Hey, by the way, you use this song. I'm like, yeah, but what are you, what are you talking about? Like he right. said it was okay. <laughs> well, yeah. it's a rev it becomes a revenue stream. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, cause then it's more or less people coming in to be like, Oh, I, I'm going to listen to this song through this because this guy put it on the podcast. I'm like, or, or you can help the act. It's like, but they don't want to help the act. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think there's, I think there's room for what I would refer to as micro licensing. Yeah. Where we agree on a recurring, some sort of recurring royalty to compensate and it doesn't require any cash up front. It's just a piece of what you make comes back to me. In yeah. The ex yeah but the, exactly. But the fact of the matter is that the argument is currently over like, well, it's not your podcast. It's the song, you know, and all that's, that's like, yeah. guys we're all in this together you know we yeah. could we could help each other if we were careful you know yeah but, well um, it, it's it's funny when you see like I, I and it's kind of i just like where this kind of conversation is going that's why i kind of want to continue it there but you know when i look at um artists now that put out songs like when ed sharon had shape of you i think it's shape of you and it's like it's a great song and then i always thought it sounded familiar but i wasn't going to like like tweet at ed sharon this song sounds familiar but um and then when it showed up, like, oh, well, this song is like TLC, no scrubs or something. I was just like, and then they sue him for it. I'm like, can you not, can you not just be like, hey, Ed, can we just have a cut of that? Because it's kind of our, like, you know, song. And, and it's like, yeah, I'm there's sure a, the kind of guy there's that a, I'm sure. There's a, there's a thing called an interpolation. Yeah. It's, it's a little designation that publishing companies and record labels have, you know, long since used uh, to solve these kind of problems. But, um, you know, it's like... It's always going to be the people who are not the artist yeah. that are really arguing about the, the pennies, you yeah. know? And I get it. Everything is pennies now. Sure. Yeah. Totally. Um, but we don't, we, don't have to, we don't have to be so aggressive about c the claim of like who's like TLC hasn't been in the charts for a while. Yeah that mean that they're not the reason that that song is popular or is yeah. doing well i don't i think it is i think they are the reason they fucking wrote it you know yeah. like so so like i mean like they're, they're the reason it exists you know so it's just like kind of like the star power thing and who's got the sunlight at the moment yeah gets into the conversation 
and that becomes toxic because then you're comparing dicks and it's like you know um so it, it it's something that i try to stay independent about deal with people directly like you and like yeah you know when with the rock band release for teenage dirtbag we it was me sending those emails back and forth about how to do that i learned a little bit they helped me learn how it works a little bit we prepared it for them and it's in the game no manager no lawyer no bullshit you know so it's kind of like it can be done. It can, it can be done. It can be worked out. It's just that there's a lot of, there's a lot of extra cooks in the kitchen sometimes, you know? No, for, like for sure. I, I just thought it was interesting. Cause like I said, when you read like, you know, this artist is suing so-and-so because of this song, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I, I kind of like, you know, and this is where you kind of get educated somewhat yourself too. Is like, I'm like, okay, but if these two acts ever come face to face with each other, like it, maybe it's not even the acts. It just makes it sound like it's the acts. Like I'm sure I've like, you know, Tracy Chapman heard someone's song or heard a demo. Maybe she might be a little annoyed, but if the person explained it to her, she might be like, uh, "Okay, like that makes sense." Or sure, like I'm a big fan. But then it's like the record companies, the record company's like, "No, that's totally your song. What, what are you doing?" And it's like, "She's she's my buddy." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like let let it be. And then they're just like, "Oh, you want to you want to rip that off now too?" It's like he's. But he said I could. He's like, he's right here. He's he's gonna actually <laughs> perform it with me. It's like, yeah. no. Well, that should be called. That's there's a word for that. It's called an interpolation. And that's, <laughs> that's nothing wrong with that. You know, like yeah. I mean, the Coldplay thing with Joe Satriani, or yeah. or you know, and there's a lot of those out there. I feel um, like you should be like, as as an artist, and, and again, this is coming from a mindset. Like, if someone said tomorrow on the charts, just say if it was like Bieber or someone ripped off your teenage dirtbag or took an implement of it. Like, I feel like you should be like kind of like inspired in a way. Like I know it's money to it too, but I feel like you should be like, this person loved this song so much. They used it in a sample. They're probably going to make it like popular again. They're probably going to help me in this in the process. You should be kind of like, oh, cool, great. Yeah, it's fine as as, yeah. as long as they want to admit it and give me yeah, the, give, exactly. give well, me the percentage. It. You know, I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and shut somebody down. Like what happened with the Rolling Stones and the and the Verve? Yeah, you hear that story? That's insanity. Yeah, like that. You know, Richard Ashcroft wrote a beautiful song over that, and it's not entirely his, sure. Yeah. But a hundred percent, like back to the like all of his lyrics, are like they don't exist, and like and that's the Rolling Stones. Yeah. I mean, are they re are they really worried about it? Like, yeah. <laughs> like are they are they stressing out about who's going to pay the next bill? Like, I yeah. don't, uh, I don't know. I mean, not, I can't. Not, not not today, anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, I feel like if I had it like that. And somebody did something like that, I would call him up and be like, "You're a fucking genius. Let's work it out." You know, yeah. like I I couldn't be bothered being like, "This is mine," and you <laughs> can't have. You know, like <laughs> I feel like it. And I say this in fairness, but it's like if someone took this interview off me off YouTube and like just took my whole, just said it took me out of it, kept your questions, and then did the same thing, I'd be like, "Oh, like hey, what what was wrong with me?" They'd be like, "Oh, I wanted to interview him too, so I just kind of." See that. Two hours, and <laughs> no. I'd, be like, I'd be like no i'd be like that's not fair <laughs> and then you and then you have to explain like well we only got there because i was asking leading questions and it's like it's just yeah, like yeah, yeah. It's, it's all a mess it becomes yeah. this like tangle of like no you didn't you know? yeah yeah it, i don't it, know I, I think it'd just be funny like no one would ever do it just just because but it's funny if someone was like here's here's tobin tonight and you're like oh that's okay and then someone like looks up tobin tonight and they're like 
Brian, that's not you. Someone else, and I think I spelled Tobin wrong. It's now with a Y. And this other like Ukrainian guy is hosting, talking to this guy, and I'm like, I'm like, well, is he doing a good job at least? Aaron is over there or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's like, I, I, he, I get yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, like he has more views and does better. I'm just like, well, good for him. Can you tell him how he's doing it? Because I'd like to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I guess the last thing, because I don't want to keep you too much longer here, but you mentioned um the project you're working on 2020 of course re-releasing the album um like has i'm guessing COVID has kind of kind of thrown a monkey wrench into the whole aspect of it but like give us a little bit more of an update or like what we can expect so i'm just about yeah. to finish the 10th song of the first 10 there okay. are 20 there are t 10 others for a total of 20 um we finished Mope, which is out now as part of the Teenage Dirtbag single. So that's, we're, we're taking it like there's the original album and then there's the Lost Songs alternate universe side, right? Okay. Um, so uh, original album has Teenage Dirtbag single, which was paired with its antimatter particle, a song called Mope from the Lost Songs record from alternate universe Swedis. And uh, that's out right now, and we're going to keep doing that. I have the next two on deck that I'm working on right now in this space. I'm about to finish all 10 of the first album's songs. I'm one more song away from finishing every little part, every little shaker and tambourine and edit. And, okay. You know, and wow. then, so, um, which I'm doing on purpose because it's a little laborious to go through the music you did 20 years ago and recreated. And it's kind of tedious to be frank. Yeah. I mean, I love these songs and I'm proud of them, but I already did this once and there's no, there's nothing fresh about it. There's no creative process, but I have never recorded the alternate universe songs. The 10 from that set okay. are untouched. And so the, the excitement about diving into that stuff is, is real. So I figured get the hard work done first, finish the first 10, get them out of the way. Like I said, there's only yeah. one of those left to finish and then work on the new stuff and get excited and feel, feel like, you know, you can wake up at six o'clock in the morning and get down here and spill your yeah. coffee over yourself and do a great thing, you know? So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so that, so that's, that's what I'm looking forward to the, the rest of it. And we're going to do it as pairs. They're going to be um, sometime in November, we're going to put out two more pairs of the songs. Um, matter and antimatter you know um and uh the, the goal being this sort of like duality of like this is our first album that you know this is what another version of the first album could have been oh, and and keep moving that way um and we don't have uh, a tour to look forward to at the moment i am discussing possibly something happening in late 2021 or early 2022 this is all sort of vaccine dependent yeah yeah um there's no fucking way i'm going out there without having a vaccine because every time i tour i get a cold and every time i get a cold it gets bronchial really fast it's something about me uh, i have an otherwise robust immune system but that middle of the second week on tour yeah I get a cold and I know that if I don't grab it right away and get in bed and get the NyQuil and get everything, then I'm going to be packing up my lungs for the rest of the tour in pneumonia state. Yeah. So you don't want that. You don't want someone being like, he, someone like just like all of a sudden it's like, he, he spit on me. Yeah, I know. There's that. there's that. And there's also like, I don't want to die. And yeah. also I have, when I go to hit the road, I bring 
20 people who I have to look out for and make sure yeah. that nothing happens to them. And I'm not about to put them in danger either. So if we wait, there'll be a vaccine. Eventually we'll get this right and we'll get it under control once that fucking idiot Donald Trump is gone. And uh, we'll, you know, we'll get back to normal. That's the only way we're going to do it. But, um, but until then, we will be releasing these particle singles, matter, antimatter, first album alternate universe first album and go to spotify directly and you can hear the first pair uh mope and teenage dirtbag um that also that single has a third song on it which is an acoustic version of teenage dirtbag that i did um oh, so okay oddly was never never came out no version of that ever came out. you would have thought but it didn't yeah. um so uh yeah it's it's cool and the next the next pair we think is going to be um Temporary Song, which is a new one, uh, and Sunshine, which is the second song from our first album. So um, that, that's the next pair, we, we reckon. Okay. No, I, I mean, that's all interesting. Like, I think it's a cool kind of concept there of coming out with, like, the original kind of soundtrack and then saying, like, okay, this is what you could have, like, this is the alternate of what you could have. Because it, it buys people in, like, for people who want to hear the classic remastered, but also want to hear, like, oh, well, what else could the could they have had let's see what they've done here um i mean a little bit of a follow-up question with that it's just out of pure interest um like do you find now with like social media like your instagrams facebook like do you find that's easier kind of to promote this stuff and get people to listen or like engaged or i i know it kind of sounds like a stupid question but i i, I feel like it should because there's more eyes now and especially with a younger generation that maybe never heard the original but they heard it from like their parents or an older sure. brother and then they're like, um, I, oh, I liked it, so I'm going to go download it. I've always been a big fan of music and, and other artistic endeavors, movies and whatever else, uh, that kind of do their own work. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, Teenage Dirtbag is this thing that's out there in the universe, and it, it speaks for us, and it manages the band for us, and it does a lot of work on its own. And that's the kind of music I want to make. I don't want to make okay. music that needs to be promoted and help, you know, yeah. help me sell my track, you know, like all that stuff. Um, I want people to find something in the work that we do that means more to them than they thought it would maybe, or means, uh, maybe even like, um, something to them personally that nothing else in their life does that kind of stuff, that connection stuff. We have a lot of friends on the road who over the years, anyone who comes up to me and is like, uh, can I just tell you a story about blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm always like, what, 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 because they always want to bringing something back to my understanding uh, of my own work, my own music that I could never have imagined ever. And it's like, you know, oh my God, I never, you know, so, and we wind up being friends with those people for life. And yeah. some of them are now in our road crew and, oh, wow. you know, these are the people who become our family. So that's, the music is, is doing the work of the connection and then the subsequent relationship know becomes a personal and it's it's good it's a good way to to have a touring family i think that's gonna do it for this episode of tobin tonight our thanks to brandon brown from weedus for coming on to the show remember you can find past present and future episodes on tobintonight.com spotify and itunes follow us on twitter like us on facebook and leave a comment or two for tobin and myself this is jacob saying thank you for listening and good night Hi. 
Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.